Hello and welcome to Sam for Uncut, a show where we explore cutting-edge technologies and meet people behind them. My name is Darko, I'm co-founder on Sanfor, and I'm going to be your host today. With me today, I have Lee Skillen. Thanks so much for joining us, and please go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, everybody. My name is Lee. I'm a founder and CTO at Cloudspeth. We're a startup SaaS in the DevOps and package management space. Okay, great. Thanks. And uh, if you can maybe spend a bit more time and uh, talk us through the previous experiences before uh, starting CloudSmith. Okay, so it's a long and arduous path and I've had a lot of different jobs over the time. A lot of that time has been spent within startups. I'm obviously addicted to it and I can't get enough of problems that founders need to face on a daily basis. So I'm predominantly technical. My life and my passion is developing things that other people love to use and join these and solve real problems for people. This is done in my third startup, the first of which was a reasonably successful search engine that ended up in a ball of fire in court cases. But the second one was within financial technology. It wasn't quite as successful, but it led to Cloudsmith today. In the recent couple of years, I've been working on Cloudsmith. I've also had a stint within a couple of sort of corporate cultures, which is a bit different, a very different dynamic to working in the smaller startups. Whenever you are a smaller cog in a larger machine, the dynamics of the relationship in day-to-day, just a different set of problems, you know. Probably seen quite a lot of different technologies, quite a lot of different uh, working styles out there, and certainly enough problems to know what I'm trying to solve with the people that are working in those companies today. You know, so that's kind of where I'm at. Background predominantly was within C and C++ and more system level type of programming. Yeah, I was you know doing some research and I saw C++ a bit floating around, so I was thinking, should I ask about that or not? But <laughs> I'm glad that you brought that up, yeah. Well, I try to avoid it these days, if I'm completely honest. There's still a piece of me that is in love with that era of programming, but uh, these days, you know, in terms of uh, rapid turnaround for the things that we're doing, the focus has shifted these days to probably solving problems for people. And whenever you're doing that, it becomes more how quickly can we develop something for the people that are out there. So people come to us with the problem and tools like you know languages today, like Python and even languages like Go, enable us to more rapidly develop solutions for them, you know, which is why I'm just in love with that. Because, you know, with today's exposure, DevOps philosophy about being exposed from source control all the way up the deployment distribution, actually getting your code out there. You know, it's a very, very different world than it was perhaps 10, 15 years ago, just developing the system level libraries that maybe you'll never even see necessarily the customers that are utilizing that, but you know eventually it will get out there. That's interesting. And what you mentioned, like experiencing both startup culture and dynamics of that and enterprise where, you know, it's, as you said, different set of problems. I think that in this co-founder startup mode where you're developing tools for developers, that's very valuable uh, to have that insight into, you know, just pace of things, how they're moving and what are the processes behind, yeah. I think it's probably very similar to yourselves at Semaphore that you are indicative of your own customers as well, because obviously I'm sure you're following best practices around deployment and build, and I'm sure that you're utilizing Semaphore even internally perhaps for the things that you're doing. And we try to do the same thing at Cloudsmith. When we're talking to customers, there's a level of empathy there with what they're doing because they're trying to solve a lot of the same problems. So that enables us to have this here higher level of thinking. You're tackling exactly the same things and we tackle that. These are potential solutions, you know. So I think that's a fantastic dynamic to have with customers and maybe something that you wouldn't have in other industries or other types of tooling. 
You yeah. know, if you're making an accountancy software as a developer, maybe you are not necessarily yourself an accountant, you know, so whenever you're talking to the users that actually utilize your product, there's a little bit of disconnect there between those people and the engineer for the product. I love this industry and I love developer tooling specifically for that reason. Yeah, yeah. Well, to be honest, I kind of started forgetting that and kind of keeping track of how blessed we are in that sense. Because exactly as you said, you know, when speaking with customers, we kind of end up discussing the technology that they're using and where you're using and what are the advantages. Then we, you know, make a full circle and come back to, you know, speaking about the product and how they can solve things. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe you can tell us a bit more about CloudSmith. I'm very interested in, you know, when choosing what to do next, how it came about, what was the driving force behind? This is where it links one startup to the next. You know, so the previous startup that I had is completely unrelated to the things that we're doing today, but it was related to being cloud native and about building platforms. So that's probably about the only thing really in common with what I'm doing today. But one of the things that we were doing around uh, tool chains, building code, we were bespoke building code for different types of financial customers that were out there. And one of the big problems that we face is that once we have this product built, how do we actually get it out there and integrate it with people that want to use it? So we said we needed some sort of distribution platform, some sort of package technologies in order to do that. And this would have been different customers for different types of languages. So we had Python, we had C++, we had you know, there's all sorts of bindings, Java, et cetera, and so forth. You know, so there had to be something with there where we could sort of centralize a lot of this. You know, so we started to look at, at that time and the different technologies, different packages and different services that provided. And there wasn't really one that was able to solve a lot of our problems. So we did probably the thing that I would tell people not to do, and that is their <laughs> own solution. You know, don't do that. If you're in that situation, maybe you could look at, you know, additional open source projects that are out there perhaps, or, you know, collaborate with elders out there before you build your own thing. And saying that, it's worked out quite well for us. You know, so we started building package and technology. And at some point, we had decided that the thing that we were doing around the financial technology was going to take a lot of money to commercialize. So we decided that actually we could maybe split off the package management side of things as a separate business. Mm -hmm. And it turned right upside down and became CloudSmith, you know, as we know it today. And at that time, I think we hadn't realized just how important something like this could be for people. And actually, in a way, it was perhaps accidental. And we realized, hey, this actually solves a real problem for the people that are out there. And we got more and more excited about that as we got more good feedback from the people that needed this. So it's kind of how we arrived at what CloudSmith is and why we're still on this journey. And we've got a lot of exciting things that are coming up based on all these conversations that we're having with people. But predominantly, it's solving the problem around. There's a lot of complexity in people's stacks and there's a lot of assets that are floating around. And especially in today's world, trying to manage all of those together is not necessarily that simple to do. There's absolutely tooling out there that can do it. But whenever you try to centralize all of that, especially as you're scaling your company with multiple teams, it gets more and more difficult to manage that basically at scale, you know. So a service like Clausbus is really helping people from perhaps a communication collaboration aspect, centralization, control, and security management of those as well. You know, so that's kind of how we arrived at that. It's a typical scratching your own itch pattern, it's... which is fantastic. Yeah, for us, it was pretty similar. So we were like a Rails consultancy and getting into BDD, TDD, wanted to ship something fast. There was just not something around that was like easy. <laughs> easy enough to use to ship stuff. You said you are not sure if you would recommend people to do that and to start building things from scratch, but you know, some people have to make these mistakes like you and we did, so and end up here. 
<laughs> Absolutely. I think, you know, on that, a lot of people ask me, maybe they're thinking about breaking out to do something like entrepreneur, start their own business. And, you know, usually I warn them up front that, you know, it looks very glamorous. You get to be your own boss. You get to do what you want to do. Um, you're the one that's defining maybe your own destiny around it. But actually, in reality, it's very, very hard work. A lot of people maybe don't appreciate just how much work is involved, especially at a founder, a startup level. You know, where you're spinning, you know, I wear a different hat for every single day. You would be exactly the same. Some days that's business and it's product management, it's raising funds, it's building relationships and partnerships. And then the other day I might spend my entire day locked in a room in the dark. Uh, <laughs> on code. Yeah. And to be honest, I love it. You know, and I've grown to love it even more as time went on, but it's definitely not an easy thing. Yeah, yeah it comes with its own set of challenges and also exciting moments. In the previous episode, I was speaking with Jacob from Packet. And one thing that we touched upon is that there is that momentum of how often just the whole company changes. And yeah. it's sometimes, you know, even like three or six months period. And then you cannot recognize, you know, how things are, you know, structured and organized and what are the leaps that were made. So I think that that kind of cancels out that, you know, hardships that yeah. you have is by that excitement. You know, it's something new after a short while. Yeah, especially at the startup stages, you're very, very involved with absolutely everything. You would take any negative things that happen very personally, which is a great thing too. If you're really passionate about it and the business, that really shows to your customers. And you know, we've had a lot of great feedback and it's one of the best things about being a founder because we're so close to the product and we have those conversations, you know, people can see that, you know, passion and excitement. It's great for both sides, basically. Yeah. I think what you guys are solving is also very interesting for a lot of customers of Sanfor. So maybe you can give us, you know, a few tips and experiences from your period at CloudSmith, but also before generally about managing assets. What are some of the biggest challenges and maybe patterns and anti-patterns that you have seen? Okay. It varies a lot. Like I said earlier, we speak to all of the customers that we have and we try to speak to as many people out there as possible. And I think DevOps is one of those fields that uh, you know is so variable what people are doing at different companies, you know, but we would always recommend when we're talking to people that if they're not doing anything around assets and building and package management today, they should certainly be looking at it. There's a couple of different ways of looking at it. If you're in a system where you're utilizing, for example, Docker, Docker images, and Docker is a fantastic ecosystem. It abstracts quite a lot away mm -hmm. from the runtime environments and maybe what traditionally would have been package management, except for, you know, if you're going directly from GitHub, building Docker containers, and maybe you've lost some of the trail of how things got into those. So you've only seen this here opaque format, which is the containers, you know, so... What we see with people is that they still do that. That's fantastic. And they utilize that for simplifying deployment. But we see some of the, the customers that probably would use package management best and that they still would build their asset chains locally as quickly as possible, still package up things like Java and traditional libraries for traceability. You know, so all the metadata that's still associated with packages is still there, still visible. You know who built it at what particular version and all the metadata that's associated with it. You know exactly where it came from and you know exactly what point in time it was put into the containers. You know, so I think one of the advices would be don't necessarily discount artifact management and package management as a thing that isn't necessary anymore. A lot of people think about it in terms of levels of controls. You know, if the ultimate goal is building containers and deployment environment, maybe there's something smaller unit that you can do around smaller feedback cycles, packages as quickly as possible. It's about reducing the feedback loop, you know, so build the packages as small as you can, and then maybe you've restricted the sort of the land service for that in terms of developers, and then leave the container building for the next stage, which you would do anyway. 
Yeah, it's very much a question of what levels of abstraction do you use to explain these elements. But you could almost say that when you are building that Docker container, you are yep. kind of provisioning your server. So that's yep. like kind of that part. Actually, the binaries that are going in and the configuration management and so on, it is still a separate phase. Yeah, because a lot of people, when we're speaking to a lot of people, the ones that are in the know and the ones that aren't, um, a lot of the time the people don't realize that, you know, whenever you're building containers, something still needs to go into it. And that may or may not be your code directly, but a lot of the time you're building up these as a composite of many different technologies. You know, you still have system level packages that perhaps you've derived from other sources and maybe you've built, like I said, your assets before they go in. And if you are um, just doing that directly from code, you've lost a part of that provenance, that chain of trust, or at least where it comes from and how you got it. A lot of the people that are utilizing artifact management, they do it because maybe they would be pulling in a lot of sources of software from other places, so public registries and public sources of software, and maybe they want to isolate themselves from changes in the public repositories so that they would pull those assets into their artifact management system and then utilize those internally only. And then that means that, you know, if there's any issues with the upstreams or if there's any you know, changes, whether on purpose or malicious, perhaps, that they're somewhat protected from that, you know, so there's kind of the sort of things that people utilize it for. Yeah. What you mentioned about uh, isolating kind of yourself from open source or like packages that are published uh, publicly, that's an interesting thing that actually burned us a couple of times. Yeah. Because our platform is around for many years different versions concretely of Ubuntu just, you know, come and go. And recently, you know, 14.04 was no longer receiving updates. And then, you know, just various packages from various places start disappearing. People are pulling them away and so on. It can be known, certainly if you're within the Windows realm, it's what's informally known as dependency hell, you know, yeah. where you might be forced to upgrade one part and then all of a sudden you've got this here huge amount of dependencies around that that now need to be updated. You know, so this is really about establishing control over that system. And sometimes it's out of your control and you just have to move on. For example, if your customers need an environment that's more up to date, then you're going to have to obviously try and tackle that. But isolate as much as possible is one of the foundational you know, reasons to utilize something like package management. Absolutely. Another thing that perhaps we hadn't realized when we first decided to do CloudSmith is that for us, one of the things that we try to deal with is the people that are distributed, the build packages for other people. You know, So this is sort of like the inverse use. Instead of you utilizing the software and about isolation, this is about people who themselves perhaps are vendors and they want to distribute it around the world. You know, so we help people with that. And sometimes that can be public and open source projects of which we like to give back and provide for free. I know, you know the thinking is quite common in this sort of field that you know promote open source as much as possible because we all use open source technology. But then there's also other people that are maybe they sell software. And so they're looking for a way of being able to distribute and handle things like licensing. That's something we try to help people as well. So it's not just about people that are building for themselves. It's also about people that are building for elders as well. And it doesn't matter what technology you're bringing. You know, we support a large part of the market already in terms of technology with a couple of other exciting things coming up as well. I think as you mentioned, you recently released uh, support for Rust. Is that right? Yep, yep, that's right. That was actually really exciting for us. You know, we're huge fans of Rust as a program language. Having sort of looked at it as something that we might potentially start dipping into for areas of the stack where we're predominantly Python at the minute, and, you know, there's a bit of Go and a bit of other languages in there as well. Mm -hmm. And occasionally there would be places where you think, 
that this is quite CPU heavy. There might be potential optimization around there. You know, so we're exploring additional languages for that as well. And also we're looking at client side as well. So sometimes there might be things we can utilize there. So we were really excited about this for the language itself. And we knew that the support for alternate registries is what they called it was coming up. And so we were sort of waiting for that to launch. Mm-hmm. And then we decided, hey, it's public now. We really should be out there. A lot of people are asking for the capability to use it. You know, and we just happened to be in a position where we were ready to launch with that. And it was very, very well received. I had a lot of fantastic feedback from it. And we immediately jumped on to being able to talk to people about it. So, yeah, I mean, it's great whenever that happens and we can open up a whole new product that people didn't have access to before. You know, so that's very exciting. And Rust is one of those languages which didn't had a lot of, uh, you know, wind in the back as go from Google, but the community around it seems to be, you know, very active and enthusiastic. I'm excited to hear that people are asking for it. Knowing that uh, you have some of the background from C++, you being interested in Rust kind of comes natural. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we see Rust as uh, C++, but with all the problems fixed. <laughs> yeah. you know, so don't be too surprised if you see some Rust-flavored CloudSmith software come out <laughs> in the future. We're very much looking forward to that. Yeah, sounds great. From the recent industry events, or maybe not that recent, generally the introduction of you know, Docker containers and they're taking up at scale and now Kubernetes, which is kind of the king of deployment and uh, running all those Docker containers. Is there anything that you see very interesting that's coming up that you are excited about and you would like to share? Yeah, and in terms of the Docker and Kubernetes ecosystems or in relation... I kind of touched upon those as those are like the major things that happened. So do you maybe perceive, do you see something similar happening or maybe a smaller, but that you have recognized and excited about? It's something that's not necessarily on the cards, but one thing that we hear a lot about, you know, and, and this is sort of related to Docker and containerization as a format. You know, people love that in terms of packaging because it really simplifies, it brings things together into sort of one format. And it's almost like a universal format for packaging but it's not quite there, mm-hmm. you know, so the way that we see it will go. And, and it's something that we're going to try and contribute to as well is, is the idea of universal packaging as a format and mm-hmm. not just as a service, you know. So whenever you start to look at all of the different ways that software out there produces its package in terms of how does it control version and what sort of metadata do you need in there and how do you establish links with the service that stores it versus where you use it, you start to appreciate the commonality between all of those, you know. So I think... What we'll probably see, and I know that there's some initiatives out there sort of looking at this, there is a universal way of being able to package software that still maintains all of the information within it necessary to trace it all the way back to its source in terms of source control. You know, so that's something that we're having conversations with potential partners about. I think there's potential excitement around that. Trust is a really big thing, I think, at the minute, especially with a lot of, you know, there's a lot, there's been a lot of news around security recently in terms of how could this have been prevented and you know what can we do to really change this. And at the minute, there's a lot of initiatives that are perhaps bespoke to the different technologies out there, but I think there really needs to be something that addresses that across each of the different types of out there. So I think that's one of the big things. We have, you know, Ruby gems or we have node packages. And on the other hand, we have Docker container and so on. So when speaking about this universal registry, you're essentially saying that regardless of that actual package, some metadata and traceability and security around that could be attached to it and kind of made industry standard, hopefully. Yeah, it's like a packaging format for packaging. (laughs) 
you know, someone sort of made a different analogy analogy to me as to what that sounded like. And um, I try not to do this too often, but it's a sort of Star Trek reference, because if you haven't seen it, you'll not know what I'm talking about. But in the Star Trek universe, um, everybody's able to speak the same language and because they've basically solved the problem of translation. You know, there's no languages anymore, or at least they, they're still there natively, but no one knows it because the universal translator means that everybody can speak the same thing. If you had a universal translation across all the types of software that you have, then you don't need to think about that anymore. It's more about how do I develop something? How do I get it out there? And that's it, you know? There's enough information in there that you haven't lost something on the way, you know? Mm-hmm. In the same way today, if you're building your containers and you now put in the Ruby gems, then it's quite difficult to know exactly what, how that was built and where those Ruby gems had come from. You know, so there's something lost in the format there. So yeah, there'll be something around that. Ruby, Java, all those languages are you know from 1995 or something like that. So it seems that in those days, some of the challenges that we are facing today were not present back there. I don't have much experience from the mobile development world, but it seems that they are maybe a bit ahead in terms of packaging that. But okay, those are platforms which are kind of under tight control. Absolutely. There's a couple of different technologies that we do support, and we have some others in our roadmap that mm-hmm. would be actually interesting people breaking into the mobile development. But yeah, I think you're right. They're, they're more controlled platforms. You sort of follow the vendor who controls that platform, and if they say, hey, this is the new language, you'll be like, okay, that's exactly the way that we need to do it. Yeah. Whereas we're a lot more Wild West, I think, in you know, in cloud world or, or traditional systems where you're basically more in control of what you want to do. It would be quite nice to see more standards and being pushed like that, but maybe that would be a more boring world where there's only one technology everywhere. I'm not really sure. <laughs> Do you maybe have any questions for me or about CICD or is there anything that I maybe should have asked and did not? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the thing for me is that we didn't really touch upon the link, I guess, between something like package management and CICD. If we did, it was probably quite brief. Yeah. You would probably see quite a lot of people doing quite a lot of different things as well in terms of your customers building the systems. One of the things that we'll be building is tighter integrations with first-class partners such as Semaphore, just to really make that a lot slicker. You know, is there anything that Semaphore is working on to probably really elevate that in terms of marketplaces or in terms of promoting that up? We don't have great experiences with marketplaces as such. However, previous version of Semaphore had uh, quite a few of integrations. That worked out very, very well in terms that, you know, it makes a couple of clicks for people to take care of something. But even if it's not a couple of clicks, it's something that's taken care of and they don't have to load the whole stack into their heads and to decipher everything to get going. So people are very grateful when we build such things or at least document them, you know, and maintain that in such a way that they can just, you know, take that and move forward. Most exciting things in the CI, but also, you know, kind of a burden that you have to carry that people are using a lot of very different technologies. I saw on your homepage, you have, you know, more than a dozen different packaging (laughs) systems that you provide. And you can imagine all the tools that people are using to build their software. For us, Docker came here as a, you know, great tool. People can isolate them from the environment as much as possible. I feel that in terms of like Docker, and generally all those other packaging formats and technologies people are using, it's probably a bit more in favor of, you know, packaging systems yeah. that people traditionally use than Docker. I mean, Docker is huge. However, there's a lot of software that was written before and it is being, you know, pushed into Docker containers to deploy more easily, but still it yeah. needs to be, you know, packaged and, you know, versioned and so on. 
I think that there is a great opportunity for uh, collaboration in that area of making it easier for people to ship their packages. I mean, that's exactly one of the things that we're trying to deal with as well in terms of simplicity and really boiling things down to be as simple with the least number of steps as possible to achieve their goal, you know, and, and it's something that, you know, we haven't completely solved in terms of making it like a one-step process for people getting their software into and out of CloudSmith, but it's something that we'll try to deal with. And, you know, a lot of come from integrations with CI and CD providers such as yourselves there. Can we make it as simple as possible for people to publish from Semaphore, but also to consume assets as well from other locations such as CloudSmith. You know, so that's something that we'll be looking into to make things as easy as possible. And, you know, that's what we've got going on. I had another question as well, and, and this is about your experiences that are around, because obviously you had Semaphore 2.0. And uh, at the time, I wasn't familiar with the pre 2.0, but you know, it's probably quite a big event to go through a full radical new version of your software. And I sort of imagine that uh, with CloudSmith coming up, we've got a lot of really exciting things, you know, on the roadmap too. And they're probably a sort of 1.0 to 2.0 worthy mm-hmm. change as well. Maybe you just could tell me about your experiences of doing that jump from the 1.0 product to 2.0. We kind of saw the product like maturing. However, industry changed in quite a few ways. So uh, Docker was a huge driving force. Our journey actually started off, okay, let's extend Sam for one with, you know, a bunch of features, which are like major things. And along the way, after a few months of like uh, doing that, we just realized that, hey, maybe it makes sense to, you know, cut away ties with a lot of, you know, baggage that we accumulated over the years. At some point we, okay, maybe we should make that, you know, kind of radical change in making a version two. Then after just a couple of weeks, it kind of naturally came. That's kind of the journey of, you know, deciding to create a second version. And then there are a series of, you know, decisions that are they made for you or you have to decide. What we didn't want to do is to alienate, you know, the users who are used to the way that things are done in the previous version of the product. And there are many of them who are using that product for, you know, five plus years. So we decided to launch this new version under, you know, kind of the, <laughs> it's the same URL, but essentially you create a new organization and a new account. And you are free to explore a new version of the product, but you can still use the previous version. I'm very happy that we took that route because people are busy with, you know, shipping and creating their software and so on. So they are not too excited about you just now deciding to, you know, change the API, the UI, the way you manage things. So giving that freedom for them to move to the new version of product when they want has been great. On the other hand, there are challenges in terms that you now have two things running, you know, in production yeah. and you have to maintain. I think that it's, you know, kind of more fair that we take that burden of us, but to, you know, smash it onto our customers. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so far it has been very successful. And uh, something that I haven't mentioned in terms of creativity and what you can do, it's kind of a new start. So yeah. a lot of things that you did from a product or engineering perspective that you were not very happy about, but decisions were made, you know, in 2012 yeah. and you cannot <laughs> change that. Yeah. We have been able to make a lot of changes in that area. And um, that's exciting from a social perspective of like, you know, engineering team of having that freedom and having that, you know, okay, let's cut away this. We are going to rewrite that in a couple of days and it's going to be, you know, much better. I know that there are a lot of products that just keep on pushing that single thing with small and iterative changes. And over that time, it becomes a monster. (laughs) There are a couple of ones that make those cuts 
To be honest, I don't know a lot of examples, but one of those are maybe Basecamp. So they, every couple of years, create a new version. They leave the previous version for the people, but then they have that freedom to, you know, innovation, <laughs> that yeah, popular word that people like to use, but it really enables that. I agree with that philosophy. I think it's very clever to be able to do that as well. And uh, like you said, it disconnects you from the customers that just do not want to change and they're happy with the way things are and allows you to experiment. A bit like the philosophy for founders in itself is like, don't be afraid of change. Yep. You know, we're here to experiment and find what fits best. And actually the things that we thought fits best earlier is not necessarily the things that fit best later on. And, you know, so myself personally as a founder, but also as a business, we have to continue to evaluate that the thing that we're doing is the right thing. And it's not an easy question to answer. So I think that being able to experiment like that is really important and differentiates you from the companies that are much, much bigger. Like you said, the monsters, they can't move in the same way with the same amount of grace that we can as startups. You know, So we can be very flexible and fluid with the problems of our customers. You would be exactly the same and being able to change products up based on that. You know? And it's very, very different from the corporate world. I was in charge of developing financial products before. It was a more enterprise on-premises type scenario. And a lot of the time we had deployed our products and customers would have taken a particular version and then maybe would have held onto that version forever. And that was it. They never accepted bug fixes. They never accepted new features. And they were basically frozen in time for the rest of the time that they had that product. And you had to support every single one of those, you know. So this is a different world from that. And, you know, it makes it easier to innovate. There is that moment of ours being smaller, but it's also about the market, the people that are using the product. Obviously, there is inertia and some people will want to be on Semaphore Classic version forever. Yeah. But on the other hand, our customers are at least a very large percentage of them are very excited to embrace, you know, a new and better tools that will make their lives better. So it's also kind of a test for us. So yeah. here's this version too. Here's this version called Classic. Are there any, you know, benefits of you moving to second version? And, you know, that's a litmus test. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, yes. Yeah. I've got one final question. We get a lot of questions from people, both existing customers and potential ones that are out there, and also just people in the field. And they said, you know, when is Cloudsmith Enterprise coming along? When is the on-premises edition coming along? I'll ask you in a second what, what your <laughs> thoughts are on it, but you probably can guess. As a business, you know, we're very, very SaaS-focused, and we're exploring things between full SaaS and is there other ways that we can be a bit more hybrid, a bit more fluid with the people that are sort of stuck in the on-premises domain. So we're working on that, but we don't really have any plans per se to necessarily have an on-premises product today. But we sort of see the market changing over time where there are many people on-premises today, perhaps, but and some will remain there probably forever for different types of reasons like compliance and regulation. But we would imagine that based on the conversation we had, a lot of them are trying to migrate into the cloud or away from that scenario. So there's definitely things that we could do. But do you have any experiences around, I'm sure people have asked for semaphore on-premises. It's bound to be a thing. Um, yeah. For years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, interesting topic. <laughs> Here is like a snapshot of what we kind of think right now. We remember the times that we were, you know, starting and there was that quote, I think, from our country, some software is in the world and uh, how much software is being produced and it's going to shift to SaaS completely. Almost 10 years later, it's still a very much mixed bag, I would say. 
for a lot of those companies, on-premises is their VPC, maybe in AWS or somewhere else, but maybe they would like to have those projects isolated. You know, speaking with a lot of customers and, uh, you know, a lot of potential customers and so on, it seems that even if regulations are not in place or something that is really prohibiting them to go to, you know, SaaS world and, you know, just send the data around the internet in a sense, with new projects, they would like to embrace everything being SaaS. However, there is still, you know, a lot of software that was written before in a different way and the projects that were kickstarted in a such a fashion kind of uh, by inertia tend to gravitate and tend to stay in that setting. One of one of our next steps, and it's something that uh, should happen in uh, late Q2, Q3, is that we will introduce like, uh, if you would call it on-premise, we, we call it like enterprise version. You will be able to install it, you know, on-premise. But we are also thinking about, you know, what would be enterprise for SaaS. That's our current like the state of mind, and we are probably going to go in that direction. Since we started Sanford, it has been, you know, seven years, and we have been kind of pushing away from, you know, making enterprise for various, you know, maybe more engineering reasons than, you know. It's also about scaling the team and being able to support it. Our state of mind is there is a lot of opportunity there, that it's something that we would like to tackle. There are just plain requests from current customers and also from people around, like, we love this. Can we put this behind our firewall? I would say that it's very, very beneficial with, you know, running in front with SaaS, making sure that product, you know, is stable. It answers the needs that people have. And then once you have that fit, then it's kind of the engineering push to package it and offer it as an on-premise solution. But then there is a set of legal and all other questions of dealing with them. We will just have to face and see how that will go. I think we completely agree with the philosophy around that and the thinking behind it. You know, when people ask us why we don't have an on-premises that's similar, you know, we say to them that, like you said, it's a matter of scale, but also SaaS is a, is a really fantastic approving ground because it's very visible as well. We're able to get that rapid feedback from the people who are utilizing it because it's a sort of centralized platform for it. You know, we bring people to us rather than shipping the software at the others. And then it's very hard to get visibility into how people are utilizing the software. And certainly would make it very difficult for us to be able to adequately support the software that was on-premises, you know? So it's definitely on the cards for us as well. I think you'll probably see for us coming up something that's a midway point between that before we really went towards full on-prem in the future, you know? But I would expect CloudSmith to stay fully SaaS, perhaps hybrid SaaS via marketplaces for, for example, Amazon. We might have some offering coming up. Um, but there's something else in between, you know, we would label it as edge distribution where people want to get uh, their assets to the edge as quickly mm-hmm. as possible. You know, so we've got things in the pipeline related to that, you know, so hopefully some exciting announcements coming up too. But I think that'll be great to see some of our on-prem out there because that says to me that you've made it, you know, you're very successful and you've got to the point where your destination of being able to offer that, you know, so that's fantastic. Yeah. When you build SaaS, that means that you have, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of users, you know, which is running on that system. So that means that that system can easily support, you know, even the biggest enterprise. And we have seen and heard that some software, which is, you know, enterprise first, when they just, you know, start reaching some couple of hundred thousands of users, it starts breaking because it was not built in such a way to support such a scale. So it's just to some extent, you know, guess and hypothesis, but I hope that it will prove to be true. Okay. Uh, that it's very tested, you know, and uh, battle tested thing that's being shipped. 
makes sense. I might have to trademark or copyright the slogan then, you know, but it's something along the lines of, you know, being able to handle web scale, but yeah. behind firewall, you know, so I, I completely appreciate that. And you're very right. And we say, did we see the same things? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, it has been fantastic talking to you. Good luck with CloudSmith. We can catch up in future again when we make some major improvements to our products and ship new things. Okay, thank you very much. Bye. Okay, all right. Bye now. Bye.